Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Wow, we had a great month. We had, in July, non-stop activities celebrating the 25th anniversary of the ADA, and the question asked by the President, by the Secretary of Labor, by disability rights leaders, one question, what next? What next in the next 25 years? And by the way, special shout-out to Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko, it's always great to see you, always. You are part of the history of the ADA, and I know you will be part of the future of the ADA. Um, I, for that reason, thought it would be great to speak to, to the author of a new book called Enabling Acts, Enabling Acts, the hidden story of how the Americans with Disabilities Act gave the largest U.S. minority its rights. I received this book around, right before the 25th anniversary, the day, July 26th, uh, and I was so impressed that I called the author, as you might guess, after 12 years, and this show being sponsored by Highmark Blue Cross and Bear Corporation, it appears that I get a lot of books from many authors, uh, but I don't have all of those people on the show, uh, but this is one that I did want to have on. So, welcome to the show, Leonard Davis. How are you? Fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So, I was asking you before the show started if you participated in the celebrations celebrating the ADA over the past couple of weeks, and you mentioned that you, too, were at the White House. Yeah, I was at the White House, and it was a, it was a wonderful event. I mean, I think it, it felt really good because uh, we felt, I, I think maybe you were there as well, that the, the president and uh, Vice President Biden really kind of understood and got the whole issue around disability. I mean, the president's speech was very moving, I thought, and he departed from his, uh, from his uh, notes to talk about Michelle Obama's father and how he had learned a lot about disability from him, because he had, I think, MS and uh, used canes to get around. Um, and that was moving. And then just seeing all the people there uh, from the past who were involved in getting the ADA get it together and seeing the young people who were part of the next generation, next generations, um, it was very moving. And I, I got to meet some of the people who I interviewed for the book, uh, people who I had maybe talked to on the phone but not seen, and then also people like uh, Bob Dole and Tom Harkin, uh, who I actually had visited and spent some time with. So it was a great event. It was. And you're right. President Obama's words were moving, very powerful. I, I enjoyed everything. Uh, Senator Harkin is a good friend of mine. I was so excited to see him and Senator Dole. Uh, uh, oh, Steny Hoyer. I love Steny Hoyer. Mm -hmm. uh, Secretary Perez. There were so many of my friends there. And then, as you said, there were uh, disability rights leaders like Pat Wright, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so many people. Arlene there. Meyerson uh, was yes. there. Uh, so many people. Ralph Neese. Right, right. And you know Tony oh, actually, Coelho. Ralph wasn't there. Katie Neese was there. Sorry, just let me correct that. Katie Neese was there. Yeah. Uh, Tony Coelho was there, yes. and everyone knows mm-hmm. I'm extremely close to Tony. He's the mm-hmm. chair of the Bender Advisory Board for uh, Bender Consulting Services. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was just... So great to see everyone. It really yes. was. It was a special feeling. It was. Um, and, very and I don't know if you were at the Nickel Gala, but no, it was. Oh, it was also just so awesome. So many things well, were going on. It was a week on. of incredible. It was a week of incredible events, and uh, I was also. I gave a, a talk at the National Archives, which was very nice and very moving to to ha- see that the National Archives that week. Had you know next to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Magna Carta, they had the ADA, uh, the documents, the paper of the bill. So that was very exciting. Well, you know, several of the speakers, including when I heard uh, at a different event, Tony Quello and Secretary Perez speak, but of course I've heard Tom Harkin speak many about the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we got this far, but we still have a long way to go. So in your opinion, especially after all the research you did, what do you think will be the main issues we will work on uh, over the next 25 years? I think, the, the da- I think one of the things that you know, we have to do is preserve what we already have. I mean, in an economy that may be one of the first things that tends to go is, uh, you know, benefits, for, especially for people with disabilities. And I think that that's very important to keep up the, uh, keep up the, um, uh, the funding uh, to work on and maintain the fact that people with disabilities will, would be put, placed in the least restrictive environments and not be institutionalized is another important thing. I think also, I mean, the ADA itself I, I was concerned with a lot of physical disabilities, Mental to some degree, but physical. And I think the uh, area that's expanding now is the areas around cognitive and affective disabilities, uh, particularly um, at, at universities where people are with learning differences, uh, people who are neurologically diverse, uh, are not necessarily getting the best uh, um, accommodations. And particularly as the place where we hang out, which used to be the Main Street and the mall is moving over to the internet, and you know more and more. Most of us spend, many of us spend a lot of our time on the internet. The internet's not really accessible, and I think that's going to be an important area to explore and develop um, rules about that. I mean, there are rules in place, but they're not being enforced, and um, there are lawsuits that are coming down the pike. So I think the internet's an important area. I think I'm a little worried about this election cycle. I think that what we're going to see is, um, and we've already seen Rand Paul uh, throwing down the, you know, lay, uh, the gauntlet, which is that um, the claim that people who are receiving disability benefits are frauds. Uh, Rand Paul basically said 50% of the people receiving benefits are frauds. And uh, that perception is a really uh, incorrect. I mean, the... the the best studies show us that the fraud rate for federal uh, disability benefits is 
under 1%, which is pretty good for any program. But uh, we're going to see the welfare queen be, uh, I hope we don't, but I, I have a feeling we're going to see the welfare queen be redressed as the disability queen. Um, and that, I think, is something we're going to need to be proactive about because I think the, there's a, there is a, a group of people, there are a group of people in this country and in Congress who want to cut benefits, want to shrink government, want to reduce unfunded mandates, and they're kind of looking and salivating at the Social Security um, Administration and particularly at disability benefits. So I think that's an area that we need to be concerned about. Uh, what about employment? Yeah, yeah. okay, sorry. That, that is the big one. Um, if you look at the ADA and what it's accomplished, uh, it's accomplished a lot. I mean, in terms of transportation, in terms of public accommodations, it's not perfect, but it's accomplished a lot in transforming the environment. Employment is a huge problem. Um, the employment rate, as you know, for people with disabilities is upward of 75 or 80 percent unemployment rate. And um, the, the ADA didn't do much for that. The, so, so the problem is we need to, you know, make it so that people with disabilities, can't, those who want to work and desire to work, can work. Um, that's going to take a bit of doing, and uh, we could talk about that if you want to. Well, as uh, Secret- uh, Secretary Perez said, that is the unfinished business of the ADA, and Senator Harkin always says about the unemployment that it is a blot on the history of the United States right now that, you well, know, yeah. we can't get that taken care of. But so are all those other things you mentioned, and actually there are even more things. There are, you know, so many things we have to work on. Uh, but we got a lot of passionate people out of there that I believe are going to make help us make this happen. But right mm-hmm. now, folks, we've got to go to break. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Leonard Davis, author mm-hmm. of Enabling Acts, the hidden story of how the Americans with Disabilities Act gave the largest U.S. minority its rights. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Leonard. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S., 
and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom, and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back everyone. We've been talking to Leonard Davis, author of Enabling Acts, the hidden story of how the Americans with Disabilities Act gave the largest U.S. minority its rights, which, of course, as you all know, a person like me living with epilepsy. So, you know, I've been in this movement a long time, and I just was very excited about this book. Not very many books have been written that are broadly known about this book, other than No Pity, which people frequently talk about. So it was great to have this new book out. Um, And, Leonard, if someone wants to buy it, how do they do that? Uh, By any of the normal means. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Indie Books. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. There's also uh, a Kindle version, and what's very nice is there's an Audible version, too. So uh, for people, so it's broadly available for people with uh, all kinds of reading styles and uh, interests. Okay, that's good. So check it out, everyone. So Leonard, what caused you? What made you write this book? What caused you to be so interested in this topic? Well, um, the first thing is that I, I'm a coda. I'm a child of deaf adults. So my parents were were both profoundly deaf. And growing up in a deaf household, growing up in the deaf community, um, I knew firsthand, I came to see firsthand, the kinds of discriminations and the lack of civil rights that people with disabilities had. So I think that was a very important motivator for me in disability studies. Um, also, as a CODA, you know, you're sort of the interpreter between worlds. And uh, dis- to write about disability and to make it clear to people who are, for, for example, not in the whole disability activism, disability studies orbit, to make, it, to make clear to them what's important was actually something that is, uh, appealed to me. And in, the book, in my book, Enabling Acts, uh, we designed that book, uh, Beacon Press uh, and I designed the book to be a book that someone who's not involved in disability could read, find exciting, find interesting. It's kind of a... Uh, it's been said to be kind of like a political thriller or a page-turner. Um, you know, it is history, but it, it tries to get the personalities of the people involved and to tell a story. So that, that was appealing to me to sort of like not, I mean, I know a lots of people in, in the disability movement. I know a lot of people, disability activists. I figure they'll read the book one way or the other. But to get the ordinary person who might have some interest, you know, to, to, to get it, that's what was sort of a challenge. 
and it is the way you described it is a very interesting um, uh, and I am one of the people you're referring to uh, that part this year is the 20th anniversary of Bender Consulting Services a company that focuses on the competitive employment of Americans mm-hmm. with disabilities and I was the chair of AAPD and chair of the National Epilepsy Foundation. Mm-hmm. So I know the people in this book. However, I found it very interesting, uh, very well written, and uh, I, I think that it is not a book that, as you just said, you must be in this industry to enjoy. This is for anyone, with or without a disability. Um, so... You know, I think it really is a good book. And I'd like to start with the momentum after July 28th, 1989, that you wrote about right at the beginning of the book, which is about how the disability community worked together to see the ADA signed into law. What I'm trying to do here is give highlights of the book you know, there's so much in this book. Mm-hmm. I only chose a few uh, examples, but could you talk about that just for a few minutes? Sure. Um, I, I assume you're talking about after the Senate um, uh, came on to the bill and then um, the, the attempt was to get it through the House. Is that what you're referring to? Right. That, right. Yes. So, I mean, actually, I would back up a little bit because the, some of the exciting stuff in the book and stuff that's never been written about on, in anybody's version um, was the kind of wrangling that happened uh, between the White House and the Senate. Um, and, you know, George Bush Sr. was the president. Uh, he had just come into office in the previous January. And, um, you know, he had an interest in disability. He, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but he had a, a quite, a, a, quite a profound uh, disability, had quite a profound impact on him. He, his, uh, his brother was born without the use of one eye, his uncle, who he, lo- he really loved, had polio. His daughter died at four years old of leukemia. And two of his sons uh, had disabilities of various kinds. So uh, it wasn't something that he was a stranger to. And, um, however, you know, the sort of drama, you know, if you want to say between uh, two, two powerful forces, was really between the business community and the, I guess you could call it the larger disability activists, group, which tended to be kind of on the left. So it was a kind of, there was a left-right uh, battle. Uh, and you can imagine it because, you know, the, the Disabilities Act is it, the largest uh, kind of civil rights act in the 20th century, possibly of all time. And all of us kind of remember, many of us remember the 1964 Act, which was momentous in the sense of what it did in terms of uh, racial relations. But actually, as a bill, it was much smaller than the ADA. It only covered public accommodations. It had a very limited scope of public accommodations. It covered on uh, employment. But, you know, that was about it. And, um, and, the, and, the, you know, so, and the remedies were very, uh, there were few and far between in that bill. So this was a huge bill. And, um, you know, it affected Justin Dart, you know, who was one of the leaders of the uh, movement to the ADA, said, that the 1964 Civil Rights Act basically said you got to open up the doors, but the ADA said you got to rebuild the doors. So there was a financial element to it that was significant, and uh, you know Republicans basically 
don't like the idea of lawsuits, so there was uh, lawsuits were going to be involved. Republicans didn't like the idea of unfunded mandates. They didn't like the idea of, you know, um, of, of, of uh, telling business what to do and increased regulations. So all of that had to be kind of wrangled. And, I mean, I can't go into the details, but in the book, I spent a lot of time talking. I got a hold of White House memos, and I interviewed people at the White House, which no one had done before. And then also, um, it turns out that there were secret, and, and, and by the definition of how they had agreed to negotiate, illegal or at least uh, uh, subterranean meetings that happened and that I describe, which were you know, euphemistically called the bagel breakfasts, uh, where, they, where the, both sides hammered out a compromise. So finally, in, you know, in July 1989, the Senate and the House had agreed on, um, on, on a bill, and then it had to make its way through seven committees, uh, uh, sorry, four committees and seven subcommittees in the House, which was unheard of. I mean, most bills only go through one committee. So they, it, it spent the rest of the year doing that. And during that time, as you said, the disability community rallied. Um, it, there was tremendous coordination and people like Pat Wright, as you mentioned, were, were, you know, she was known as the general. She was sort of leading the, the, the whole, uh, um, you know, uh, effort. But so many people were involved. And, and, it involved, and you know, it, it, they had people calling up their, their Congress people. They had people, you know, going to the offices of their local congressperson to, their, you know, to come to Washington. Um, it, it was a, a major act of coordination. And just to keep the pressure up, so that the bill could move through all of these committees. And at the same time as that was happening, the business community was sort of catching on because when the White House and the Senate were, they were, were negotiating, it was a kind of a stealth bill. And it remained a stealth bill, actually, for a good deal of the way. But the business community caught on. The religious community caught on. Um, you know, all of these, uh, the municipal transit and the bus companies, all of them began to catch on that there was going to be this major legislation that was going to affect them. And they began to lobby, too. So you have both sides lobbying to keep the pressure up. To, and one of the ways that I put it is you could either see the bill as a bill which disability activists were pushing to protect people with disabilities, or you can see the bill as one that the business community was pushing to protect business from the very people with disabilities who might bring lawsuits. So there's a Manichaean battle between two powerful forces. Well, you described that so well, and it is so exciting when you read about that in the book. Just as was mentioned by Leonard, there there is a lot of like back room, you know, negotiations. Really interesting. Um, heated arguments. I mean, it's just really, really interesting. And I've always thought people sometimes underestimated the incredible ability of a Republican president to thwart off people in his own party that were opposed to this and work with uh, Democrats to get this through. Sadly, can't seeing that happen today. But it well, really no, uh, was, you know, I, you know what I mean, Leonard? No, I do. In fact, uh, what you said is interesting about George Bush Sr., <clears throat> because, you know, um, I, I, I got to interview him, uh, luckily, and uh, one of the things he said, and I believe him, is he said, you know, there was a lot of pushback and there was a lot of opposition. We had to do arm twisting. But he said it was the right thing to do. 
And I actually think he thought it was the right, it wasn't politi- it may have been politically expedient in some sense or another, but it was the right thing to do. And, uh, um, so I, I think there's that thing. I, I, everyone I interviewed, Bob Dole, Tom Harkin, Steny Hoyer, Orrin Hatch, all of the major politicos, they all said the same thing, which is they said the ADA would never get passed today. It would never get passed uh, in our current you know, deadlock situation in Washington. So that's sort of also interesting to think about, you know, because it seems so obvious like the ADA is the right thing. As George Bush Sr. said, it was the right thing to do. But even the right thing to do might not get through. Yes, I agree that I don't think it would today. I really do not. One of the differences is that moral imperative, uh, the belief that they were doing the right thing, really more like statesmen, you know, people Mm -hmm, working mm -hmm. together, uh, able to compromise. And it was a big deal. It so when you was see, truly you know, when you a great greyhound. Uh, so many businesses, just as you mentioned, opposed. Uh, to get something like this through was really Herculean during that time period. Absolutely. And when you, when you, you know, in the book I talk about the relationship between Teddy Kennedy and Orrin Hatch. I mean, mm-hmm. they were on the complete opposite sides of the political spectrum. Teddy Kennedy, classic Democrat liberal, and Orrin Hatch, you know, died in the wool, uh, neoconservative. Um, but, and they worked together on this, and they, they hammered out their, and they, it wasn't they agreed on everything. They had to hammer out differences. But they did. Um, and, you know, the, the final votes on the, on the ADA were pretty overwhelming. I mean, it wasn't like it was a close race. But, all of, but it, in order to get that kind of unanimity, you had, to, you had to iron out and hammer out all of the differences and, and compromises, you know, before you, the bill finally ends up uh, passing. Yes, and, you know, Ted Kennedy Jr. is on my advisory board. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, so is Dora Bush, the president's sister and or daughter, if it's uh, George H.W., and um, they talk about all of this frequently. Mm-hmm. And just going back to what you said, I've even seen specials on uh, how Oren and Ted Kennedy really worked so well together and liked each other, mm-hmm. and yet they were like so on the polar opposite yeah. Uh, opposed end, and yet they they really did. It it was really an amazing thing, something that would be wonderful today. A lot of people who read the book just talk about this issue, about the bipartisanship and how it almost feels kind of warm and fuzzy, you know, compared to what politics looks and how. Yeah, that's sad but true. Well, right now, folks, we're going to go to break. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Leonard Davis, author of Enabling Acts, a great new book with insight about the Americans with Disabilities Act and the disability rights movement. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. 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 Opin
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S. and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com if you have a question or comment call in toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now please welcome back the host of disability matters here's joy spender hey welcome back everyone We've been talking to Leonard Davis, author of Enabling Acts, the hidden story of how the Americans with Disabilities Act gave the largest U.S. minority its rights. And it's funny, right before we came back on, Leonard and I were talking about Justin Dart and his fabulous, wonderful wife, Yoshiko Dart, who is still living and very active in the disability community. But I noticed when I was reading this that you stated that Justin Dart was more than any other person, the spokesperson and inspiration for the disability activist community. Why did you say that, and how do you think he did that? Well, I think, I think in terms of public perception, he was a face that, you know, I, I, the, because it was really a democratic um, movement, and I say that in the, in, the, in the best sense of the word. It was democratic. It was broken up. So many people did so many things that there isn't a single person like Martin Luther King that people can recognize. You know, I mean, certainly there was uh, Pat Wright and there was, you know, uh, Evan Kemp. And, but those are not our names that most people know. But Justin Dart is the one that, you know, to whatever extent, he was, he was the face of uh, this particular moment. I mean, his cowboy hat and shoes are, you know, in the Smithsonian. I mean, he, it's got a, he's got a certain kind of uh, recognizability for those of us who are interested in this subject. Um, you know, he was very important. Um, I tell his story in the book, uh, which is quite a story. I mean, I'm not the first person to tell it, 
but he was kind of a wastrel and scoundrel. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, really kind of hit bottom and, you know, literally went to a mountaintop in Japan and changed, you know, by spending one long cold winter up there with, with Yoshiko. And, um, and, you know, then he came back and fa- kind of found, and he had never, re- he was the son of the Walgreen, you know, mm-hmm. guy who also was on Reagan's, in K- Reagan's kitchen cabinet. So he, but he was kind of a, I won't say near-do-well, but I would say like he didn't find his place in his life until he began to do disability-related things. And then he just, he just hit, he knew how to do it. He had, he had money, so uh, he was able to use his money in constructive ways to get uh, disability rights uh, going. He knew everybody in Washington, and he was the kind of guy who didn't take no for an answer. Um, he would show up, he would show up again and again until, you know, people, and, and he was likable and he was charismatic. So he was really able to um, get the whole the ADA going, and particularly when he was involved with the uh, National Council on Disability. And it was out of that group, which was a presidentially appointed group, that the first draft of the ADA came. And that was, you know, because of Justin Dart and Lex Frieden. Bob Bergdorf uh, wrote, uh, helped write that draft. And uh, that, was, that was sort of the, uh, if you want to look for, like, the template of the ADA, it came out of there. Yeah, and, you know, he had the ability to unite Mm-hmm. That is one thing. He was able to bring together all the disparate groups. And well, uh, yeah. frequently we talk about that, how Justin could bring everyone together. I'm meaning, you know, from the deaf community to the blind community, uh, all the groups. He, he was able to bring people together, really like no one since. Uh, mm-hmm. It's too bad we still don't have that today. And I was uh, speaking the other day to my friend, Andy Imperato, who was, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, just on this show last week, and he said, I'm going to tell you something about Justin. Justin could look at you in a room when he's speaking and make you feel as if you were the most important person in that room. And he, he was like that. And he wrote That's these unbelievable little notes to people. Um, I mean, he, I didn't get to meet Justin till approximately, I'd say, one year before he passed away. And in that short time, and then I became very close to Yoshiko. But in that time, he had already sent, he and Yoshiko already had sent me a note. And, and he was like that. He, he was just, Unbelievable, really unbelievable. Um, and as you said, that hat, it seems as if everyone knows about that hat. You know what I well, mean? Can, yeah, you can go to the Smithsonian and you can see Justin Dart's hat and cowboy boots and you can see uh, Ed Roberts' wheelchair. So, you know, the Smithsonian does have this uh, kind of sense of disability history. Catherine Ott has been great in, in developing that there. But, um, you know, my... I have certain huge uh, regrets in writing this book. One was that I didn't get to interview Ted Kennedy. He was already dead before this project started. And, of course, I would have loved to have interviewed uh, Justin Dart. I mean, I watched as many videos of him as I could. I read whatever I could. But um, everyone I talk to who talks about him refers to him in this way that is quite extraordinary and that he, he, it was almost like he was a kind of like a religious 
leader as an, an inspirational leader as well as a political savvy, very savvy political um, uh, operative. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's yeah. true. I mean, I think I, ta- I, I said in the book. I think somebody told me that um, that Dart had told them, you know, when you're going to give money to a senator or a congressman, make sure you like wrap it in a, uh, a cylinder so they can't really see how much money it is and put a big bill on the outside. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah well, that would be him. That would and, be and Justin. I also, I think it's really important because people always talk about Justin. Dart, but Yoshiko, and many people refer to her very fondly, but uh, in the book I really describe what she went through, because, you know, Justin Dart traveled to all the states something like five times, and, you know, one of, at least two or three of the times to help formulate what the ADA would be, and then to get all of the disability diaries that people all over the country wrote that he brought to the uh, Senate hearings and dumped on the floor in a, a scene reminiscent of uh, Miracle on 34th Street, mm-hmm. and... Uh, but but all but her involvement and what she did for you know he had a special diet that he could only eat right. and uh, she had to bring all the food and be in the hotel rooms and try to figure out how to cook in a hotel room that wouldn't allow you to do that and wash all the dishes in the bathtub. I mean it's an incredible story that someone should make a movie about the two of them. I mean really. I know, and I knew about that, what you're talking about right now, you know, the special diet and what she did. But actually, I'm glad you talk about her in this book because people underestimate she's like this strong, powerful person, uh, you know, behind so much that still goes on, Mm -hmm. but definitely with Justin. Um, And that's why I gave her a shout-out. I do on almost every show. Because uh-huh. when she listens, and I can tell you she's doing this right now, she answers me. So, okay, well, I, you know, she's listening. Yeah. I say hello. I saw her at the <laughs> White House briefly. But um, one thing I think it's important to, to, to write about the people who are the caregivers uh, to people with disabilities is because they have a very important role, and often it gets downplayed. You know, but, but the people who live with people with disabilities, the people who are related, um, they're part of a network that's very, very important. And, you know, and, and also caregivers, personal assistants, those people, uh, people who, who give care need to be, uh, a, a pay, they need to have attention paid to them and uh, appreciated them as well. That I agree with you 100%. Uh, well, you mentioned about growing up with uh, deaf parents and actually you know, when you read the introduction that you wrote, I want to read it to my uh, internal staff because that so well, uh, sadly, represents the way many people with disabilities are treated uh, as your parents were treated. But that brings me to something that you must be very familiar with and you wrote about in your book was the deaf president now uh, historic movement that occurred at Gallaudet University. Um, my question, what impact do you believe that had on the deaf community? And could you talk a little bit about what happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people know about the Deaf President Now movement, but for those who don't, um, you know, Gallaudet University is a federally funded university. It's one of the few, aside from West Point and Annapolis, uh, that 
American taxpayers uh, fund. And um, the hist- and it was founded by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so it's it's a, and by the way, I recommend if you ever go to Washington D.C., go visit Gallaudet. It's a fascinating place to visit. It, it's beautiful. It was designed by Frederick uh, Olmsted, who designed Central Park uh, and a number of other campuses and around the U.S. And it's just a, it, I think it's an historic and and eye-opening place. But um, you know, for it, it was like many uh, organizations for people with disabilities, it was paternalistic. It was run by hearing people. The board of trustees were all hearing. The presidents were all hearing. And um, and so uh, when in 19, I think it was in 1989, uh, there was um, uh, they were getting a new president. There were three candidates. Two were hearing, and one for the first time uh, was deaf. And his name is I King Jordan. And uh, the board of trustees voted, no surprise, for the hearing candidate, one of the hearing candidates. And and you know there was so much hope in the deaf community about this. There was so much hope at Gallaudet that there would be a deaf president. And when they heard this, they were, you know, shocked, angered, heartbroken. And the students, like, woke up. They actually set off all the uh, light alarms because there's no sound alarms. or There may be sound alarms, but there's light alarms with flashing lights. They got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they took over the campus. They barred the doors. They got a bus in front of the gates. And... uh, for the next week, there was a protest all over Washington and on the campus. Um, it got it got a lot. If you remember, it got a lot of attention uh, nationally and internationally. And at, that was sort of at the same time that the ADA was, you know, beginning to go through uh, Congress. So it added. It was like an accelerant. It added added to the uh, flames. Uh, and and people in Congress were talking about it. Eventually, the students won. I King Jordan became the first deaf president, and at the same time, they instituted a uh, a deaf person on the board of trustees, and uh, it really changed the whole nature of Gallaudet. So it was very, very important in the deaf community. It's re- when people talk about it now, they talk about it as you would talk about the Revolutionary War, or you know, um, you know, uh, it's just like a world historic thing for deaf people, and for hearing people, I think it's also kind of cool and important. Um, I've seen it referred to in, t- in TV shows like uh, Switched at Birth, uh, which had a, a ser- couple of great episodes about deaf- deafness. Right, and I, King Jordan, spoke here in Pittsburgh at the uh, Thornburg Lecture Series. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I've met him and know him. And, and I just think that people have to realize that that one event so changed, you know, the demands of the deaf community on how to be treated mm-hmm. equal, absolutely powerful. We can do it. You know, we mm-hmm. can. And I can't imagine this message of you're really smart and you can get jobs, but by the way, you can't be president. Right. So you exactly. know, I yeah. wish I had been involved then, which I was not. Uh, that was only let's see four years after my accident as a result mm-hmm. of epilepsy that, that ended up with me having brain surgery. Um, it was, uh, and even though I was back to work within four months, I still was not part yet of this whole community. Mm-hmm. But that had to be amazing, and it had to be powerful yeah. to have the impact that it did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, there are many things I want to talk to, but I just want to get to a couple of things before we close the show. And one, uh, Leonard, for you personally, what was the most meaningful chapter in this book? Well, that's a, a tough question because when you write a book, you're so involved with everything. Um, I think one of the really interesting, well, I think the bagel breakfast stuff was really interesting because, you know, I was writing this book and I had no idea about this. And uh, as a journal, you know, as a historian journalist, you're, you know, you're asking people, you're talking about things, and it kind of didn't, it didn't make sense about how they got from point A to point B uh, in terms of resolving issues. And um, I was talking to one person who just casually mentioned something. She, she said, uh, oh, well, there was something that went on, but I can't tell you about it. And if you say that to a, you know, a journalist... Yeah, that's then, it. You know, and I had really developed a relationship with this person. So I was saying, come on, you can't say that to me. Tell me. And she said, I can't. She said, in fact, I was sworn to take this to my grave. And I'm, oh, my God, what is it? And, uh, you know, she, it, it was months before she told me, and, I had, and in order for her to tell me, she, I had to contact other people who had sworn on their graves uh, or that they would not, you know, tell. And finally, we kind of cracked this open, and I got the information. But that was kind of exciting as a writer, to, to write about something that no one has written about and ever even knew about. I mean, that was one thing. The other thing I think that was very interesting for me was, of course, to you know, uh, get the inside story from the White House, which also was part of the hidden history. And then the third thing was that um, you know, one of the villains of the story, I mean, because the story's been told in broad outlines before, and one of the villains is this guy named Chapman, uh, who, who uh, you know, for your listeners, this is a little, maybe a little arcane, but the, 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 the main point is that the bill was going through. It was going to pass. It was going to happen. It made it through the House, Senate, and it really virtually made it through the House, except for this one amendment that this guy, Chapman, uh, a, a Democrat actually from Texas, threw into the bill. And he was a young you know, congressperson. There were obviously other people who wanted this thing put in, uh, more conservative. Uh, and the bill was, uh, the amendment was that, no, that they were going to carve out people who are HIV positive from, the, from, the, uh, from being considered disabled because they were not going to allow them to handle food. Uh, they were, anybody who was a food handler could not have HIV. And Chapman, so he's the kind of, the, and it stalled the whole thing. It almost got to the point where the bill was not going to pass because the original uh, people who had agreed on the bill said that they were not going to carve out, they weren't going to cut out any group, particular disability group. They were going to, you know, like ha- stay together. And this, was me, this basically was saying, like, if you want this bill to pass, find all disability groups except for people with a, who are HIV positive. So I interviewed Chapman, and no one ever has ever interviewed him. And I got his version of the story, which was interesting, including, in fact, that he was actually really sorry that he did that amendment. And he was punished uh, in a way that I'm not going to tell you right now, but if people read Enabling Acts, they can see that. So that, you know, it, it, that was fascinating, to find the things that no one else had told. That was exciting. Yeah, that's what I like also. I do. I like that you did that. Um, and, and again, I know, let's see, how long have I been on the air? Twelve years, um, thanks to Highmark Corporation and Bear. You know, I don't know, maybe one other book in 12 years I have endorsed. 
but I am endorsing this book. I, I just think it was uh, very well researched. It's not just this is what I think. Uh, I mean, very good. I would encourage you to Leonard Davis Enabling Acts to pick that book up. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. That's high praise. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, it's actually, as a writer, I was trying to be as objective as possible, so I didn't do too much, this is what I think. I really let the facts and the story speak for itself. Yep, you did. Well, now, you, wow, you've accomplished so much already, especially being an author of this great book. But uh, my question is, if you had to choose one thing, one thing that you felt the proudest of, what would it be? You know, I, I know you, uh, I saw some of the questions you were going to ask me in advance, and I was dreading this question because I'm really not a person who thinks, uh, you know, when people say, what's your favorite movie, what's your top book, you know, I, I'm not, I don't think that way. So it's really hard for me to say, like, what is the one thing? I, I, you know, it, I, I'm not, I don't think about myself that way. But I would say, like, the overall thing that I'm really happy with is I'm really happy with, you know, the decisions that I made and, and the, the job that I have. I'm a professor at a, at, a, at University of Illinois. I teach disability studies. Um, I've written books about disability, and that makes me happy. And the thing that makes me feel the greatest sense of accomplishment is when, you know, people write to me and people I don't know, people who I've never met, and say, oh, I read your book and it really, you know inspired me or it really gave me some ideas I didn't have before. So that, that's what I like. I mean, I, I come from a deaf family. I'm a CODA, a child of deaf adults. And, you know, one of the things that you do when you're the child of deaf adults is you help people. You help your parents. You're, you interpret for, the, for them. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and almost all the CODAs that I know are in the helping professions. They're social workers. They're teachers. They're, you know, they are interpreters. So I think it's a great pleasure when somebody says, like, wow, you really helped me. That, that makes me happy. And, you know, we still have um, a long way to go about when you were talking about the deaf community and helping your parents by interpreting. As you know, my whole life I'm on a crusade. It's about employment. Mm-hmm. And, um and that's 24 by 7. So I work across the United States. I work with the federal government, you know, finding employment for people who are blind, epilepsy, deaf, wheelchair user, whatever it is. And I have been very successful finding employment for people who are deaf, but I also have had this nonstop barrier of what, how would we communicate? And number two, how much will this cost because mm-hmm. of using sign language interpreters? And right. I mean, it is really um, a barrier for many people who are deaf. And, you know, what do you say to people when they say that? Well, I think that's a great point. And, you know, I, you remember at the White House, one of the really nice things when, when Obama was talking about is, and people, I think, forget this, that the receptionist at the White House is deaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said they refer to her as Rotus, you know, like POTUS is president of the United States, and she's Rotus, receptionist of the United States. But um, she's deaf, and, you know, she applied for the job, and she got it. And I think he specifically said that she wouldn't have gotten that job if it wasn't for the ADA, which I think is true. Um, 
You know, the, the ADA is all about reasonable accommodation. So the question would be for a business hiring a deaf person, could you make reasonable accommodations so that there could be communication that would be fairly easy? Um, I mean, there's no way around the fact that interpretation is expensive. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the thing would be that you would want to hire the deaf person in a situation where they didn't actually necessarily need an interpreter, but that they could work using the Internet, using, um, you know, uh, the, the, teleti- the TTY, using other means uh, of communication. And, many, and the other thing is that many, many deaf people are very good uh, at using sign and lip reading at the same time and can get along perfectly well. So you have to find the right job. I, you know this. You have to find the right job for the, the right person. Yes, but I want to say, all, with video relay today, mm-hmm. uh, smartphones, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I could go on forever here. There yeah. are ways to communicate. Absolutely. And video re- relays, this is free. Now, right. for interpreters, you don't need them 24 hours a day, you would need them for a review or, you know, one-on-one meetings, right. uh, or if there's so many people in the room, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the person contributes, is there all the time, you know, gives you 100%, why mm-hmm. would you not include them? The right. people and I play so many... deaf at Highmark, by the way, Pardon? have all been promoted, and guess where else? The National Security Agency. Yeah, so you know, yeah, yeah. please don't, don't do that. Don't prevent people from having that opportunity. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And and uh, you know, the employment issue, which we started out talking about, and you you know, you do such good work with. I mean, that's one that we really have to uh, work on. Um, and, the fe- and Obama mentioned that he had done this executive order in the federal government to increase the number of people with disabilities. And, that's a- and the federal government's kind of a good model because unlike the private sector, there's actually a fairly high employment rate of people with disabilities in, in, fe- in, fe- in the federal government. So maybe some of the lessons learned from there could be applied uh, elsewhere. And yeah. the, the other thing that I, I, I point out, and I don't know what your opinion on, is on this, but if you look in uh, the European countries and also in Japan, there's a very high rate of employment for people with disabilities. Um, and that's because they're much more proactive in development issues around you know, training people for disabilities, but also they require that businesses of a certain size have to have a certain percentage of people working there who are people with disabilities. Well, I'll tell you what, with 503, I hope we're going to see a huge change with Section Mm -hmm. 503 of the Rehab Act. But, hey, we've got to get ready to go. Do you have a final message for our listeners? Uh, My final message is just that, um, you know, people with disabilities, uh, like any, are the largest minority in the United States. They're the poorest minority. A lot of work remains to be done. But the fact that that the ADA has conferred civil rights on on a large group of people is something very important. We should pay attention to that, and we should always consider that we are only, all all of us are are temporarily abled, that, you know, 56% of people over 65 have disabilities. It's not an us-them situation. It's, you know, we're all involved. That's right. Well, hey, Thank you, Leonard. We're going to get ready to sign off here. One last time, Enabling Acts by Leonard Davis. This is Joyce Bender. 
America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 